Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week. How does a parent go from celebrating a child's life to ending it? Days after celebrating the boy's first birthday, his foster mother shook him to death because he would not stop crying. But on this podcast, we will let that baby cry. We're going to play a tape of him because this tiny little victim deserves to be heard. We need to honor him. We need to hear him. So get your tissues ready. But first, listen to this. These are the details that are emerging about the murder of a woman in Michigan. Her boyfriend reportedly told police that after strangling her, he lived with the body in the basement of his father's condo for almost seven months. Neighbors noticed that there was a weird smell coming from that apartment, but it wasn't until a family member went into the basement looking for a Christmas ornament that the corpse was discovered. We are recording this on Wednesday, May 25th of 2022. I cannot believe it. Our guests today are the hosts of Crimes and Consequences, the podcast. They are two attorneys with a passion for unraveling crimes, even though they specialize in family and adoptive law. We have with us today, Tanya Corrado and Talia Getting. Hello and welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, Anna. Thank you. Hi. We are so excited to have you. So just for those of us who are watching and not just listening, Who's on the left and who's on the right so everyone can figure out who's talking here? <laughs> I'm Talia. And I am Tanya. I love you guys. You're in Michigan. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is so cool. I love the fact that you are practicing attorneys and you you practice one type of law, but you have a passion for another type of, of law, meaning the crimes that people commit. Um, how'd you all start your podcast? I mean, we're going to talk about it you know, later on, but I'm just curious, like, why did you decide to do a podcast? Well, Talia and I are law partners. 
we um, we had our practice together and we would eat lunch together every day because we wouldn't go out or anything like that. And at lunchtime, we would discuss true crime. We both had a passion for it and an interest in it. We would talk about just well-known cases or maybe we would see something in the news that would trigger us. We started talking about it. Then Talia had a family member introduce her to podcasts. <laughs> Who knew they existed? <laughs> I didn't. I, did, I knew they existed. I just didn't know what they really were. And we started listening to a few different podcasts and we said, we could probably do this. Why not? Just get a microphone. It'll be easy. <laughs> it wasn't that easy. No, but <laughs> here we are. <laughs> Here you are. We're glad to have you. I can't wait to hear your insight. I know that you do your due diligence on your research. And so I'm very excited to be working with you today. So let's get right to it. Our first case is out of Michigan, literally, apparently down the street from you. Yeah, like 10 minutes away. Wow. We need to send you to the murder scene. <laughs> we, should have done the podcast. <laughs> we should have done the podcast from the murder scene. Here's the case out of Michigan. So a man is accused of murdering his girlfriend and then living with her decomposing body for seven months. It's extraordinary. And, you know, even with the neighbors complaining about the smell, it's shocking. It's shocking that it went on for so long in a condo complex. We're not talking about a freestanding house, you know, many feet away from neighbors, and you know, the mail delivery. So um, let's get to it. 37 year old Matthew Gerard Lewinsky is charged with strangling his girlfriend, Courtney Jerry Winters in December of 2020. And he kept the body in the basement bathroom of his father's condo in Clinton Township, Michigan. The body of Jerry Winters was found nude face down with her arms apart head turned to one side. And here's the really shocking thing, a part of the skin on her back, like a really big part of it had been removed. I don't understand why. Actually, we don't understand why. The detective has testified about this in the preliminary hearing, yet we do not know why um, that happened. And then, as we said, the neighbors heard um, something at some point and they, they could smell something as well. So her body was discovered in the most interesting way. This was with a family member because um, we'll get into the estrangement and how what was going on. This was actually his father's condo. Uh, one of the relatives is looking for an ornament and then they find the body. It's like Christmas in July, but like really twisted. It's gross. Yeah, yeah. it was incredibly shocking. I can only imagine I when her husband, because her husband had gone into the condo to look for something as I understand it. And he came out and said, we need to call the police. I can only imagine. Yeah, because reaction. Well, I think the lights were left on, and Matthew had been put in invo been involuntarily committed the day prior, and been sent to Henry Ford Hospital, which is not far from where he lives. And it's my understanding that he was under a seventy-two hour involuntary commitment because he was found wandering around in his underwear the day before. So the lights were on, and so someone called his sister, Deborah, and said the lights were on. So that's why they went and checked. Right. And what's interesting is that so Deborah and her brother, Matthew, were estranged. 
Uh, Deborah had guardianship of their father who was failing. Uh, there were issues with the condo. He, the father owned the condo. The condo was in foreclosure. Matthew was angry at his sister for not keeping up the bills. Um, he was kind of vocal about that. You all found a GoFundMe page um, that kind of was a lot of dirty laundry with the family business. Yeah, he was trying to raise $5,000 and basically saying that his sister was neglecting his father and his father's bills and stuff. So he had that GoFundMe to raise money for it. But I don't think he raised very much. No, it, it, it was kind of odd. And so what ends up happening, like you said, so Matthew is having some kind of a breakdown, walking around in his underwear outside his condo in the complex. So he goes to the hospital Right. The association calls the sister because she is the legal guardian of the father's of the father and the property. So because they were estranged, the sister finally feels she has an opportunity to go to the condo because she had tried. It'd been a year since she'd been in the condo. She'd been trying to get in there. Matthew wouldn't let her in. Well, hello, there's a dead body in the basement. And um, so this was the perfect time to go in, see what's going on since technically she's responsible for this property and get some family things out of there. So she is outside, Deborah's the sister, she's outside FaceTiming with her husband and a friend of theirs because she needs to say to them, okay, you need to go here, you need to go to this corner, you need to do that, right? I'll show you where to go. And he gets down there, the husband, and is like, oh, we need to call 911. So that's yeah. how this whole I thing I bet he didn't say it quite like that. I bet there was a few, <laughs> few extra words thrown in there. <laughs> Yes, I would think so. Um, so let's it's talk. Shocking. It is. It's, it's, I mean, it's just shocking. To find a body absolutely is, I mean, always. And when it's a family member, it's, and it's in a family home, if you will, it's even like more disturbing because it's the last place you expect to see a body um, is under those circumstances. So the body was found on July 27th of 2021. Now let's talk a little bit about the relationship between the victim here and the accused killer. So Courtney, Jerry Winters, um, she went by Jerry, although the sister called her Courtney. So if you all get a little confused, it's just because everyone's using different names. Um, Matthew and Jerry lived together, uh, in that condo. Apparently, they had a pretty volatile relationship. What do you all think about what was going on there? There had to be something, I don't know, I don't want to say like domestic violence or something, but they must have argued quite a bit because, as I understand, she did leave him at one point and left the condo. But for some reason, she, maybe he persuaded her to come back. And when she came back, that was in December of 2020, a few days before Christmas, and that's when this happened. And as Matthew described it to the police, he said they had an argument. Finances were always an issue for them. And as you mentioned before, Anna, the sister, or I'm sorry, excuse me, Jerry <laughs> had expected the sister had called her to be paying the bills at the condo. And they had an argument about that. So I imagine that Matthew and Jerry probably had a lot of financial issues and they had an argument about it. And then Matthew attacked Jerry. I, one of the things that I want to point out is there's this alleged conversation in which Courtney is talking to Deborah about not paying the bills. But the condo's in foreclosure, so there's no rent that has to be paid. So, I mean, 
are we talking about the lights and the electric that these two adults that are living in this condo can't even pay? I mean, that was one of the things that I first wondered about. Why are they fighting about bills when they don't even have to pay rent? It appears that when she came back right before Christmas, as you said, you know, each of them um, kind of threw these these Molotov cocktails at each other. You had her allegedly telling Matthew that she had had an abortion while she was away. And then she's going through his phone, finds something that really upsets her. And this argument starts. And that is when he starts describing to police what he says happened and in a very gruesome detail, um, which much of it was just recently released in the preliminary hearing. So um, it's almost shocking to me the amount of time that he describes that he starts to um, strangle her. And he says he strangles her almost to the point where she is lifeless, but he doesn't, did, did you get the sense that he was that he computed that maybe he had killed her at this point. I did. I, I did. Too. I felt that he knew what he, he did. He knew that he had done it because, to the point there was no coming back. Right, because he said he he choked her until she stopped moving, and that it was almost five minutes. Can so you imagine? I would think oh, five minutes is a long. That's time. That's a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. That's that is shocking. So apparently that happened in the living room. And then he takes her body and moves it to the basement bathroom. Where he just leaves her. Right. He just leaves her body there. and Well, for a while, he just leaves her body there. And then it starts getting really, really strange. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out this whole um, removing of the skin part. So... One of the detectives testified during the preliminary hearing that a large portion of her skin on her back from the top, across the shoulders, around the torso, and then just down to right above the buttocks had been removed to the point where you could see the internal organs, internal tissues, the skeleton. Really, at this point, she was so decomposed. And yet no one can provide us with any reason as to why he would do such a thing. Well, you know, Anna, something that I think is really interesting is the question is how long had she been dead before he did this? Because they said there was blood splatter in the basement. So if this, if she's, if he's doing this and she's really decomposed, there's not going to be blood splatter. So why is there blood splatter in the basement? So are you thinking that after he allegedly you know, remember, he's just charged. So are you suggesting after the act of strangling that he then takes her down and then removes the skin pretty much, you know, in real time there? That's what I'm wondering. I mean, I just don't understand how what happened that would cause blood splatter. Mm-hmm. Interesting. They also said that once the police got there, they also found rubber gloves. They found bleach. All these things that presumably at some point, um, you know, he would have tried to clean up. It, the difference, I think, for me with this case and some others is when the body's found in a different place, you know, 
and you have, let's say, bleach and gloves and all this other stuff in the house, you can make an argument saying, well, it didn't happen here. Right. Even And then the forensics will get in there. It is very, very hard to deny if you've been living with a body in the basement. It is just like, it is one of those facts that like, what do you do with this? I There's no way he could live in there and not know. <laughs> Even it, if he claims he didn't do it, but which is not what he's claiming. And based on what the neighbor said, I mean, the smell that was permeating the neighborhood was so disgusting to them. They were they were saying that there had to be a dead animal there. Imagine what it's like in the house. I, I know. I can't even imagine. When I have a dead mouse in the house, it's like, you know, I don't know. It's awful, right? You've, everyone knows what that is like. So imagine it, the size of a human body. It's horrible and during this time while he has her body one of the things we saw online was a picture that he had posted on i think it was twitter of this spaghetti meal he made like in the house where there's a body we know is rotting in the basement man has to eat (laughs) (laughs) i want to ask you your opinions on the knife So apparently the knife, police claim that they found a blue-handled knife um, on a bookcase in the bathroom. Who has a bookcase in the bathroom? I'm sorry. I mean, what? (laughs) I thought the same thing when I read that. A whole library in there. (laughs) Who does that? Maybe a magazine, but a whole bookcase? Okay, kind of interesting. Unless the police are just, that's the what they call a shelf. (laughs) That's right? True. That's probably That's okay. True. I can see a shelf Good in the point. bathroom. Yes, yes. <laughs> my my guess is <laughs> a book. Oh, there's a bookcase in here, lady. Um, <laughs> so the police say that the cuts on the body match the knife. That the knife was used to mutilate her. So what's interesting is this is a knife that she gave him. To me, that is very symbolic. He's using a gift that she gave him to destroy her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I always, you know, find those things to be very, very specific. I find that hard to just be, oh, it's the only knife I could find. It's possible, but think about it. She's already been strangled. If we are following and listening to what he allegedly told police, then that's his timeline. So he has had a mental health evaluation, several of them, while he's been in custody, Remember, he was standing out there in his underwear um, for a while. Don't forget and, that. Yeah. So he has been deemed competent to stand trial. He is charged with three separate crimes, first-degree murder um, and the mutilation of a dead body and then the concealing of the death of an individual. It's interesting. Every state has different charges that they add that are associated with murder. And so it's very interesting for me to hear the specific charge. He faces life in prison if he is convicted on the murder charge and, of course, less on the others. I think it's going to be a really hard one for him to explain why his girlfriend was dead in the basement and there for so long while there's proof that he was living there. I don't know how he gets around that in court. I really don't. Well, and he confessed. Yeah. Yes, he did tell police, but I always am very suspicious of confessions. Uh, And the reason I am is because it always comes out whether they confess or not. It will be challenged in their trial in an attempt to defend them as part of the defense. So yes, I agree with you. (laughs) Even when people completely confess, 
Um, it sometimes becomes a little bit of a sticky issue. I, uh, the one thing you can't get away from is the dead body in the basement. There's no getting around yeah. it. Yeah. And I know his attorney, and she is a strong advocate for her client and, and her client's rights. She is tenacious, and she's going to give him the best defense possible. Now, I have no idea what their strategy is. I'm going to guess that they're going to have some sort of affirmative defense of not guilty by reason of insanity or I'll, I mean, they're going to obviously, in my opinion, have some sort of insanity defense. In the state of Michigan, you can have a not guilty by reason of insanity. And once, so you're immediately, if that happens, you get put into a center for forensic psychiatry. And then once you're deemed well, you're released back in society. But in Michigan, we also have guilty but mentally ill. And with the guilty but mentally ill, you will go into the Center for Forensic Psychiatry, and then once you're deemed well enough, you get put into prison and you serve out the sentence of a guilty person. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. Do you think the fact that he's been um, deemed uh, well enough, right, and competent, I should say, not well enough, but competent to stand trial, does that kind of, is that a mitigating factor? No, that won't play a part because it's really going to be about what his uh, mental state was at the time of the murder. And when you have a guilty but mentally ill, what often is the case in a situation with that is that's the case where somebody has some sort of temporary mental illness or something. That is going to be a more likely result in the state of Michigan than not guilty by insanity. For the most part, not guilty by insanity is it's just extremely rare. You're gonna have those are gonna be the people that clearly couldn't even function in society because they were so mentally ill. But guilty, but mentally ill, is basically you're deeming them to at that moment have been mentally ill in this in the sense of not having the ability to conform their behavior with the laws of society or not have the ability to know the difference between right and wrong mm, at that, the time of the crime. That's really interesting. Thank you for that. Our next case is just so disturbing and so tragic. This is about a woman who wanted a baby so badly because she couldn't conceive that she and her husband took in a foster baby with the intent of adopting this little boy that is until the foster mother killed the baby because he would not stop crying. When you see the photos of this little baby boy, I swear to you, it looks like the Gerber baby from all the ads. Red, red, big cheeks with his little hair with a swirl on the top. I, I, I swear to you, it's like a Victorian photo when you look at this baby. So cute. So happy with the smile. For those of you who are listening, this photo is just joyous. You look at this baby and your heart opens up, just opens up. And then to think that he was killed, killed because he wouldn't stop crying. He's a freaking baby. Babies cry. This case is from the English port town of Barrow in Furness, uh, it's a huge case, and we thought it was really important to cover this. For those of you who are regular listeners and, and, and who watch on YouTube, you know that 
we always focus on the most innocent and the most vulnerable um, on this podcast. And this little baby, 13 months old, his name Leland James Corkle. Leland James, you know, this was even an issue for the foster parents. They didn't want to call him Leland James. They wanted to start calling him James. And and um, the English version of uh, the Department of Children and Family Services kept telling the parents, his name is Leland James. Please call him by his birth name. It's important. It's part of respect. It's part of acknowledging who he is. And I'm telling you, that's like the least of the disrespect that this little baby had to put up with. But for me, it's just one more one more thing that shows you how they treated this little baby. Um, it's He was killed on January 7th of 2021, just after the Christmas holidays and after the New Year's celebrations and after he turned one. It's horrific. Now, the two of you, I know Talia and Tanya, for you, it was very important that we cover this case. We almost, you know, put in a different case, but you both said, no, we really want to talk about this because it's personal for you. Can you share with that so people will understand and have insight into your comments as we go through the details of this crime? Both Talia and I practice adoption law, as you had mentioned earlier in the program, but we also are children of adoption. My stepfather adopted me when I was in middle school, and Talia was adopted at birth. Yeah, and I also have an adopted daughter. So being that I'm an adoptee with an adopted child, I it's just very passionate thing. And so we practiced adoption law. We practiced it for years. And one of the reasons I really wanted this to be something we talked about is because I don't want there to be a negative connotation or a, a, any, I, I want people to appreciate that adoption still is a beautiful choice. It is, it, it is still an amazing thing. And what happened in England is so tragic. Like it just, it's upsetting to even talk about it, but it, but adoption is still a very beautiful choice. It is, you know, and, and we could not as a society truly function if we didn't have uh, foster parents, if we didn't have, you know, and, and the greatest gift that these foster parents give, you know, taking in children during a moment of crisis when something horrible has happened and, and helping them and fostering them. And there are wonderful, wonderful success stories. And the same thing with adoption. However, uh, as we talked about on the last podcast, when we had a very similar case, that when the system fails, it's not like a paper jam. They're failing. The system fails a child, a life, a human life is lost. And so, and this is irreparable. And we need to be able to shine a light, focus on the crime that happened. We need to know the truth. And this can't always be hidden in the shadows because otherwise there will be no change and there will be no accountability. So that's the difference here, right? It's, it's. We need to learn from it. We need to learn from it so we can better the system and learn how we can correct the mistakes that are there and prevent it. Like I mean, like you were saying, you do a podcast, there's room for error. But when you're dealing with a child's life, there is no 98% okay. This is a 100% error-proof system that needs to be in place. This is yeah. a life. 
It is. It is. And so when something like this happens and we're going to see the red flags that were emerging and that the social workers were aware of it and, and it ends so tragically, so tragically, and it didn't have to. That's just it. It didn't have to. It didn't have to. So let's get into the details of the case. So he was killed, as I said, on January 7th of 2021, right around the holidays. His foster mother, 38-year-old Laura Castle, has just been convicted of murder and child cruelty because Laura Castle violently shook the baby to death after she lost it. She said he wouldn't stop crying. He died of fatal blows to the head. His brain was swollen. His little neck had experienced whiplash from the thrust of the shake. That is how violent this was. Now, the child had been placed with Laura and her husband, Scott Castle, who desperately wanted a baby. They couldn't have a baby. So they had had Leland James for five months, and they were in the process of formally adopting him when this happened. According to the BBC, social workers had concerns about the adoption and had even flagged it that maybe they weren't going to let it go through because Laura had admitted that she was struggling to bond with the baby, that she and her husband were struggling with that. Now, that to me is a very real thing, I presume. You know, that happens whether you have a biological child or not. Bonding isn't always easy. And with a baby... It is just, they need, need, need. It's as simple as they just need. And, 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 and the, how you relate, all of this emerges with time, but it's not an instant, woo. So maybe you could give us some insight here into the, the, the challenges with the bonding. That's a big issue in adoption. I mean, I didn't experience that when I adopted my daughter, but it, we personally have seen that happen and i would say that it almost always goes away i mean 99 percent of the time it's just it takes time like you said it just takes time to bond and especially if the child is um a little bit older i know that he was what eight months old but i i think that when they are first born this the sooner the child gets placed the more likely that bonding will occur as they get older it gets more and more difficult the bonding was is so so important but one of the things in this case that you will get to is the bonding it's not just the it's not it's not just her inability to bond but her behavior in general in my opinion towards this child like what she thinks is right and wrong as far as caring for a child is just way off oh yeah there's no way when you hear how she talked to him how she referred to him and how she treated him that baby didn't want to bond with her he knew exactly what was going on i'm sorry children know babies know who love who truly loves them and who you know who does not babies know this yeah, and they said there was that comment that they made, well, we don't think he liked us. Well, I mean. Of course he didn't like you. You were horrible was, to him. You yeah, beat him. Right. Absolutely right. he's Yelled not going to like you. No. I mean, th- they, said, they said things about him. They called him names that you don't call a baby. Even in jest, it's ridiculous. And to hit a baby, like disciplining a baby who is a year, less than a year old, 
this this story blew my mind because not only were they using corporal punishment, talking about with each other with um, Scott and and Laura, talking about, I think she said that she was going to tan, giving him a tanning or a leather leathering or something like right. Well, it's it the equivalent means, to a whooping or something like that, right? But, you know, when she was trying to clarify with police that, well, I only mean I was I hit him one time. Like, how is it acceptable to hit a baby at all? No. And, and then, one, right. Right. And then, you know, so much crying. And from the video that I know you're going to play the audio from that he's crying and she's doing absolutely nothing to comfort him. He's just crying and she's just shushing him. Right. And she's saying shush, shush, shush. And it, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's. She also made the comment that to her husband, if I don't stop hitting him, I won't be able to stop hitting him. Right. And, I mean, if you are at that point that you um, you should have some sort of self-awareness about what's going on and, and, and reach out. But it almost seemed like in the comments she was making with her husband and stuff that it was almost a joke-like situation like the way that they would they would totally berate this child and oh if I don't stop hitting him I won't stop hitting him like it wasn't taken seriously how grotesque and and horrible these kind of comments are and her behavior was there's no self-awareness and they even discussed between the two of them about giving him back but the reasons why they said they didn't was because well extended family loved him and it did, so it didn't have really anything to do with them and their relationship with Leland James. It was more, well, we can't give him up now. And I thought, well, one of the other reasons they didn't want to give him back was because they would probably not be considered suitable parents for another adoption. Exactly. They would, or they would be looked at and scrutinized more closely. Basically, they would be, they would screw themselves over if they gave that baby back and tried for a better baby. Mm. He, oh, interesting. He, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. Interesting. Yes, I bet that would have happened. Well, that really, honestly, at the end, would not have been a bad outcome. That would be the universe, you know, rectifying this situation and saying, these two, no, they don't get a baby. They don't get a baby. They don't get a baby because they don't deserve one. So let's get into some of the background here. Leland James Corkill was taken into protective custody just two days after his birth. So he was born on December 21st of 2019, and he was placed with a foster family for the first eight months of his life. And according to all the court records, he was fine with this foster family. There were no issues. They loved this little baby. But what ended up happening is that um, it became apparent that he was, um, he had an illness that needed to be taken care of. Leland James was diagnosed with something called pyloric stenosis. Forgive me if I pronounce it incorrectly. It is described as a narrowing of the small intestine, which caused him to lose weight, and it affected his ability to eat and digest. So after surgery, he returned to normal. It appeared that he was well. He was healing from this. And he was now moving along in the process for adoption. So um, his first foster mother, you know, she had taken care of him and there were no issues. And then this new family emerges, this couple, the Castles. They couldn't have children. They were trying to adopt. So they started by fostering. In May of 2020, the Castles were approved. Uh, and this was apparently a long process. 
of interviews, visits with family members, home visits, um, a lot of contact with social workers for this couple to be approved, to be foster parents, and then ultimately adoptive parents. So a few months after they're approved in August, Leland James moves in. And I do believe that that was probably the beginning of the end for this little baby. It sounds like it didn't even start out well at all. Right. They didn't yeah. bond with him right away. No. And, and you know, you can, and the system can do the background checks. They can interview friends. They can interview families. In the United States, we have home study. You had to have a home study if you want to uh, adopt. And it's a rigorous process. I mean, you have stacks of paper this high. They want to know everything about you. But they can't determine if you're going to bond with that child that's given to you. And having never parented before, Laura and Scott didn't know how they would react and parent a child. And obviously, she was never meant to be a mom. But until she was put in that situation, I don't think anybody could have really known that. No. And I think also the fact that Leland James had um, some issues with his digestion and his intestines. Clearly, you know, if you've ever had a colicky baby, and I did, and you're trying to calm them and soothe them, it's a, it is exhausting. And it's very, very hard. And, um, you know, you do, almost don't realize how, how significant their discomfort is until that colicky period stops. And all of a sudden, you're like, are you the same baby? <laughs> I'll, exactly. I'll never forget that. I'm like, oh my God, where did you come from? <laughs> Look at you. That's so, exactly true. Right? And so when that colicky period finally stops, you truly understand how uncomfortable they were. That's why they were crying so hard. They're and suffering. Suffering. Absolutely miserable and suffering. So it is hard. It is definitely not easy. And clearly, Leland James had his little struggles with him, but he was on the mend. He was on the mend. The thing is that his foster, his first foster mom said that he was on the mend and that he was back to being a happy baby again by the time that Lauren Scott were had the child placed with them. Yeah, exactly. And you know, either they weren't equipped, they didn't know. I mean, there, there are a million reasons. There, this was a perfect storm of a very bad match, and and just no good could come of this. I so, think she didn't like him. I think I think she didn't like him, and as a result of not liking him, she probably resented having to care for this crying child that she didn't bond with, that she didn't love, and didn't. She just really didn't care how she treated him. I think you're right. And the text messages between the husband and the wife, that's like when we say these horrible things that she said, it's not someone else repeating it. They were written. They were all from text messages, the communication between the two of them, because the husband worked overnight. So she'd be home with the baby crying and she'd be texting the husband and back and forth. And that's how it was revealed that they called this baby such horrible things and they said such horrible things. So the difficulties began early on, early on. And I think you're right. She didn't like him. They claimed that it was in jest that those texts, they were just joking with each other. But these texts are just horrible insults. There, 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 there's no humor whatsoever. You can joke about a baby being a pain or baby being 
fat or chunky or whatever, but these are insults to a baby. These are like hardcore insults that an adult would say perhaps to someone else they were extremely angry with. I mean... Ugly. First of all, she she called the baby lazy. (laughs) How is a baby lazy? What is it? Is it stupid. Is it supposed to entertain you? I don't understand. So she calls him lazy, big, and, you know... There are far worse things that we cannot repeat, but I'm going to repeat this one because it'll tell you everything you need to know about these parents. They call this little baby a shitbag. Who refers to their child that way? Uh, unbelievable. So, you know, she the texts are going back and forth, and she's telling the husband, um, you know, that she hit the baby. Um, she said that she would... Not she'd do like a little hit as a way of getting his attention to stop crying. Please, someone explain to me how in the world you're going to stop a crying baby by poking them or hitting them to distract them from their crying. No, they're going to cry more and louder and harder. And then you know that she's screaming also at this child. You just the neighbors heard her screaming. So you have this child that's crying and you're trying to what, soothe the child, comfort the child, get the child to stop crying by screaming and hitting the child? I mean, anybody knows that's not comforting, that's not soothing. That's right. not going to help. No. No, they were totally ill-equipped. In fact, in one of the text messages, she said, quote, I honestly really don't like him lately. She also said, quote, I totally regret doing this. That, I believe. That, I believe. I too. And then in one text message, Laura said to Scott that she needs to stop hitting him because one day she's not going to be able to stop. She wrote, quote, I'm going to lose my mind, quote, I can't stop smacking him. So that just makes me so enraged. Well, you're going to be more enraged in just a second because I'm going to play now a clip of Leland James crying. Apparently she took this video herself on her phone. The mom, this foster mom, and it was obtained by the Daily Mail. Um, in this video, you're about to see Leland is clearly crying, and it's several episodes and different times where he's crying. He's in one of those bouncy seats. He's bouncing, and he's crying, and he's getting hot, and um, he's absolutely miserable, and his mother keeps trying to shush him, his foster mother. We're going to play it now, and you all decide for yourself. You're getting all hot. So at the very end of that, you just hear him wailing it's a different kind of wail and um he said it all leland james clearly told us what he was going through she tried to stop his crying and that's why i want to play that
so upsetting. We need to hear him. He needs to be heard. I agree. He is the victim here. His voice must be represented and justice must be served. And thank God, ultimately, justice will be served. But there's no going back and there is no undoing this. And so that's why I wanted to just listen to him cry. Because isn't that what this was all about? That she didn't want to hear him cry. And the fact that she videotaped it, I don't understand why she did that. Maybe to send it to her husband to show this is what she's dealing with. You know, look at this horrible baby. And like you said, there were several instances. So this just wasn't one time. So when we looked at the, when Talia and I watched it, I mean, I know both of our hearts just broke because he's not being comforted. He's, she's just letting him cry and it's cruel. And it's just, I mean, both of us had the gut reaction. Just We're both mothers. Pick her up. Just pick him up. Yeah, just, just pick, him, pick up. him up and hold him and maybe that will help. And even if it doesn't, isn't it nice when you're crying? I mean, even as an adult, for somebody to hold you just and comfort, comfort you. Yeah. And she didn't even do that for him. And like you said, he just told us exactly what was going on in those cries. He did. And you know, Anna, mm-hmm. Anna, by playing that, you show that he was a real little boy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's real. This is not just another statistic. This was a real little boy. He was clearly suffering. He was clearly sad. He clearly, at one point, he's rocking. And for those that don't get to see the video but hear the audio, he's rocking back and forth as he's crying. And as we know as adults, that's to comfort himself. That's a self-soothing method. Yes. And she's just videotaping him instead of loving him or trying to soothe him. Yeah, you know, she said it all when she said, I don't, she testified, well, actually the husband testified and he said, I just don't think he really liked us. And it's like, yes, yes, Scott, he didn't. And you can see why. And you guys need to look in the mirror and figure out why he didn't like you. That's why he didn't like you. So I do want to go through this one part. Um, Look, uh, the two of them, as horrible as they are, at one point, several times had said, you know, this isn't working. This isn't working. And there was at least that clarity where they had talked about maybe not going through the adoption process, but she shared that she was under pressure by her extended family to keep the baby. And, you know, that probably is like talking to mom, dad, your aunt, your uncle, whatever. It's like, this isn't working out. I think we need to give them back. And they're all like, no, right? No, but unless they're physically helping you, right, and dealing with it, their opinions really, I'm sorry, don't matter. Uh, And we all know what that's like. Oh, it'll be fine. Well, sure, you know, you're you're two hours away (laughs) while this child is crying. You're not helping me. So I I do want to talk about that. So is it possible, I guess because it was a foster situation, I mean, they really could have given him back, right? That wouldn't have been the end of the world. Absolutely. No, it would not have been the end of the world. They absolutely could have given him back because he wasn't adopted by them yet. There was nothing permanent through the courts. And up until the point where he's deemed your child legally, they could have given him back. But as Tanya said, that might hinder them from ever being looked at again for adoption. Now, the United States is different than it is, than the way it is in England. 
I mean, you can foster and you, you can tell them, listen, I can't handle this child and that child will be placed someplace else. But they were actually trying for a permanent adoption. So, you know, that's a little bit different. And I mean, in the United States, if you're an adoption agency and you give a family a child and they're like, no, no, this one's not working out. I mean, the odds of you placing another child with that family would be slim to none. So I don't know how it is in the United Kingdom. Especially considering the warning signs that they have already documented that the, you know, not bonding with the child, um, smacking, the hitting, mm-hmm. the hitting. Um, you know, they also mentioned that they noticed that the parents didn't find any joy in yeah. anything that he did. So when you come to do the home visit, the social workers come and just check to see if the baby is reaching milestones. Is he sitting up? Is he noticing, you know, is he hearing things? Is he, is he going through the proper child development? And usually, you know, as a, as a parent, you're excited just for even the smallest things when, oh my gosh, he's standing now or things like that. And for them to document and say that those parents did not find any joy in anything that that child did, I mean, that's telling. And for that to be on their record then, if they were to give this baby away, I I really doubt they would be considered seriously for another adoption. That's so interesting. As you were thinking about that, it's like the first time my son like um, like pushed himself up, he was on his tummy. You know how you practice that? It was literally right behind me <laughs> where we're doing this podcast. <laughs> it was down here in the family room. It's like, that's exactly where it happened on the floor. <laughs> um, um, I... I have a question, though. If you adopt a child, right, and it goes through, and what if it's like a total disaster, can you, after an adoption, give back a child? What happens? There is something called readoption, but that is not, that is far and few between. Um, and that's not really through the, the, the system that's private. There are groups out there that will help readopt. But, but you can't I mean, go to the court and say, "No, I no, give up my parental yours. rights." You can't say, "I can't," and I have to give up this child. No, once you adopt, that's final. It's as if the child was born to you. But but there are there are measures in place to make sure that it's successful. I mean, one of the things is you can't just adopt somebody a baby overnight. You know, it's a process, so you have the time to try to bond and you can push the time out if you need more time like therapy for bonding or something but once it's done it's done you literally stay in court that you acknowledge it's as if the child was born to you i mean you could abandon your child it's right a, yeah i mean i mean right know, technically there, there are they could, it's not right? great but i mean there have been some cases like that um that could turn into criminal charges. But so, yeah, I mean, if oh. you're abandoning your child or neglecting them in some way where they get taken away from you or. Yeah, you but know, see, that to me is a criminal charge where at least nobody dies. And right, and then right. and sometimes it's a matter of everything is a matter of degree. And when you grow too far and the child is dead, there's no going back. There's it's it's finite. That's it. There is no second chance here. Um, now, I want to talk about his death. I want to talk about Leland James and the night he died. So on this night, the father, step back, excuse me, the foster father, Scott, had been working overnight, came home, went to sleep. And at 8 a.m., his wife, Laura, wakes him up holding Leland James's body, just completely limp. And she's holding him and saying, he fell off the sofa. 
That's what she said. And so they call the paramedics and he's rushed to the hospital and they determined he had extensive brain injuries, including swelling and bleeding around the brain. He died the next day. Her story was she was trying to comfort him. Give me a break, lady. Would this be the first time? Right. And that he fell off her lap. And that's what happened. The pathologist confirmed that the damage to his spine and his neck, as well as the bleeding in his brain and his eyes, was more consistent with an aggressive shaking combined with a head trauma. So then Laura's story changes slightly with the police, and she says, okay, I did shake the baby in a bout of frustration to stop him from crying, and that he accidentally then hit his head on a piece of furniture. Really? That's quite different than falling out of your lap onto the floor. Right. And she said that she didn't murder the child. Um, She did say, you know, she snapped. She didn't intend to kill the child. It's very possible, right, that she did not intend to kill the child. But she didn't have the tools to deal with this baby without question. And if you are repeatedly hitting, shaking a baby, it's not going to end well. It's just not. She knew that herself. She said, if I don't stop hitting him, I won't stop hitting him. I mean, she knew that this... Was so, uh, this was a real possibility in her life, in her future, because she was getting out of control. Yeah. Prosecutors allege that this was not done accidentally because neighbors reportedly hearing a loud thud and then not hearing any more screaming, meaning they didn't hear the baby anymore. The prosecution argues that it was most likely that Laura Castle smashed the back of Leland James' head with some kind of very significant force against either the armrest of the sofa or possibly a table in the area. The jury took two and a half hours to convict Laura Castle of murder and one count of child cruelty. Scott was found not guilty of causing or allowing the death of Leland James. Scott was also found not guilty of child cruelty. I find that kind of interesting because is that because they couldn't prove that he placed a hand on this child? Because if you look at the text messages, I think referring to your child as a shit bag, you know, and agreeing with it is, yeah, that's cruel. That's child cruelty. That's abusive. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably that they couldn't maybe necessarily prove it. it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he was gone a lot, and so and she was the primary caregiver. And the, I think that I don't know, like, all the text messages are what she's doing to the child. And then he's just, he says he's just kind of going along with it by calling the child names back. But, I mean, there's no text messages or anything that actually showed that he physically touched the child. And I yeah. do remember reading a text message where... They had a discussion when they were discussing giving Leland James back to the agency or to the county, what have you, that he said something to the effect of to her that, well, you're more important to me than him, or I love you more than him, or it was something like that. So Mm -hmm. that kind of shows, too, even he was kind of in that mindset. Yeah, it definitely was not working out. I mean, this was... This was not a good match at all. In the United States, I think that a better charge for him would have been failure to protect. That's Mm. a big one that we have here, and that's when you are, you know, the parent that 
has an idea of what's going on and you don't care enough to, you know, to investigate and then something happens or you've actually seen the child being abused and you didn't do anything to protect the child. So I feel like that would have probably been a better fit, but I don't know the English system. Yeah, I agree, Talia. I think that would have been, that should have happened in this case. And, you know, prior to his death, social workers did say that they um, were still working on that review for uh, Leland James' adoption, which was going to happen in early January. So the amazing thing is, which is so horrible, this is like our case last time, last week, the, the adoption was going to happen very close to the time when he was killed. It was all happening in January. I think at this review, though, there was a strong likelihood that the child, from based on what I read, that the adoption might not be approved to go forward. Correct. That's, that was my thought. And I don't think that it, in an, a review is different than a finalization. It's way different. In the United States, we have reviews every, it depends on the state, but every month to every three months. And what's a, a social worker will check on the child, they'll write a report, and it will get submitted to the court system to have it in the file for when and if there is an adoption. So they might have just gone to have a review to see if perhaps the child should be removed from that. Mm. Oh, that's a good point. That's, that's a good clarification there. Now, the government, the county that oversees the uh, protection of children has said that you know, they are obviously very deeply sorry about everything that's happened, that they're doing an independent review and they're going to assess how it's possible that the castles got as far as they did. And if there were these red flags, which social workers came out in court, were sharing that they weren't sure that the castles were a good fit, then why didn't they intervene faster? And and could they have removed Leland James faster? Could they could more have been done? And obviously, yes, the answer is the answer is. Without question, yes. So right as we were uh, preparing uh, to record this podcast, the sentence came in. And so she, Laura Castle, has been sentenced to life in prison uh, with no less than 18 years. She must serve a minimum of 18 years in prison before uh, she can be considered for release. And I think that's Great. I mean, I'm. I. I wish it could be more, but I mean, at least it was taken seriously enough that she got that. Because if you remember, in you know society decades ago, child abuse that was just like a slap on the wrist. I, you know, so our society, so our society perhaps is getting better, but I mean, I'd prefer to just remain behind bars. Well, it is it is a life sentence, and yeah, and we don't. There's no guarantee she's going to get out in 18 years. We have no That's idea. True. We we don't know what's going to happen 18 years from now, but she's going away for a really long time. Something that I thought that that I think is very telling about about Laura, even after all this happened, and he was in the hospital, and he's on. You know, they're they're trying to save this baby. She didn't come forward and reveal what really happened, perhaps give them some insight into, you know, his potential injuries, you know, beforehand. I don't think he probably could have been saved, but she wasn't honest about what happened. And she continued to lie to her husband, to the prosecutors, to her family, to the world, and denied all accountability and responsibility for his death and perpetuated this lie up until the very last moment. 
And she said that she was just afraid of the consequences if she were to say tell the truth. Well, to me, that just says that she was trying to cover her ass. She was afraid of what would happen to her. Yeah, I don't believe Leland James was ever placed first in this relationship. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories that you all are talking about on our social media. And our producer, Will Updike, is here with what you all are talking about. Hey, Will. Hey, how's it going, Anna? Hey, Talia. Hey, Tanya. Hi. Hi, Will. So this one is a doozy. Uh, we have a case of some foully damaged goods at a local store, a new term coined by police officers and a celebrity exonerated in the crime. So according to a news release from the Wichita Police Department, a female suspect entered a beauty supply store and how can I put this delicately? Uh, defecated in the middle of an aisle. What? Uh, Police say that as a result of this, which they called a significant incident, eight wigs were destroyed in the process and the store immediately wanted to pursue criminal charges for the damage of the wigs, which was reportedly over $200, which not a lot of money for wigs, I gotta say. No, uh, what kind of, where is this place? Which is That's a great Kansas. price for a wig, hello. <laughs> what about eight? extensions? For eight, like are you kidding bottom. me? Uh, so this this entire incident was captured on surveillance footage. Oh, that, and of course that's it dirty. was. <laughs> dirty. Oh, and the Wichita Police Department obviously spared the general public from the details, but they did release the pictures on their Facebook page. They were looking for information on the suspect, which they to- which they coined the term the poopetrator, which oh, it. not bad, not bad for the Wichita Police Department there. And they asked uh, for tips if anyone knew the identity of public enemy number two and a flurry <laughs> a flurry of tips came in obviously you know when you get uh when you get tips like sort of you know solicited tips some of them are good some of them are total you know uh in keeping with the theme of story so the wichita police department had to come out and make a statement on their uh actual facebook page they said we've already confirmed that this is not amber heard so please stop calling and emailing that info thanks (laughs) which it's it's so funny to me that they received enough calls uh about that uh, that they had to go ahead and make this statement. People were having a field day with the Amber Heard jokes and the and the comments. Normally, we're a fan of puns on this segment. I'm going to spare you the puns in this one, uh, but let's see what some other people have to say. Dan L. said, oh, and I was just about to go wig shopping. <laughs> Tough day. Uh, Catherine K. said, can you get a DNA sample? I'm no. sure. I'm, I'm sure the police would really rather not uh martlena said eight wigs only totaling up to two hundred dollars those cheap plastic city wigs deserved it which i don't know if i would go that far oh wow maybe (laughs) they are yeah maybe they're like those weird party wigs Oh, I mean, it had to have been, right? I mean, 200 bucks uh, for Really? Eight, what like... do you know about wigs over there, Will? I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I know, well, human well, hair was... is the best, and you're not getting eight of them for $200. Uh-huh. Right? Wow, you know a lot, actually. But anyways, <laughs> that's beside the point. Uh, Megan M., we got a local comment from her. She said, I live in Wichita, and let me tell you, I am living in fear until they catch the perpetrator. The suspect has now been identified unclear uh if they've made an arrest yet in that case but if anything happens i will keep everyone updated in the comments that's going to do it for today's comment section thank you so much thank you talia and tanya for joining us and thank you anna for uh hearing what the people had to say 
Clean up on aisle two. That's what I say. <laughs> I'm That's thinking there's some cheap. I think there's some uh, wigs probably at a discount right now over there on sale. Clearance rack. Lord, Lord, Lord. All right. Thank you, Will. Well, that's our program for this week. Thank you so much for joining us, Talia and Tanya. It's been wonderful. So where can people um, find your podcasts or where are you on social media? We are on most apps where you can find podcasts. You can find us Crimes and Consequences. Just search for that. We have a website, crimesandconsequences.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. And our handle is at Hardcore True Crime. Hardcore True Crime. Wow. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, Really, thank you so much for your insight and uh, everything, especially on the um, issues of adoption and fostering. You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. Uh, You can find all of our episodes for our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And please check out the My Favorite Case series, which is the sister podcast to this. Really fascinating conversations that we have with people in the world of crime. Subscribe to True Crime Daily's YouTube channel and also to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Until next week, as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.